Acts chapter 1, verse 1 says, The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which said he, Ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at your word, I just ask, Lord, that you would uh, help us to grow in our knowledge and in our, grow in our faith. And um, Lord, that you would just help us to draw closer to you through this time, Lord. I pray that you would help me as I speak, Lord, to be clear in the things I say. And I pray that what I say would be true and helpful and be encouraging to those that are here, Lord. Just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we begin this chapter, uh, verse 3 says, To whom also he showed himself alive, that's the apostles, after his passion, many infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days. And so Jesus, after his resurrection, was around and he didn't spend the entire time with his dis- disciples. He, didn't, he wasn't always with them. But for 40 days, Jesus would appear to them and he would teach them. And just... As at Easter time this year, this thought came into my head, and I can't believe I actually managed to follow through with it, but I thought about doing this sermon at this point. Do you know how long it's been since Easter? <laughs> As of Friday, it was 40 days. How long of a time span does that feel to you? Like, we've moved on 
from Easter, haven't we? <laughs> like, like that's a, almost like a distant memory to us in our day-to-day lives. But in reality, it wasn't very long ago, was it? So you wonder what it was like for the disciples through that time period. And this is why I wanted to use this Sunday to get to this point. Is they had Jesus for that, that extra 40 days after his resurrection before he ascended into heaven. And although that seems far past to us at this point, we've really moved on, right? But if you only had that 40 days, man, that's a limited amount of time. <laughs> it seems awful short when you look at it from that perspective. So when we start to look at some of these things here, verse 2 says, Until the day in which he was taken up, after that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. And in the end of verse 3 it says, And speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Jesus spent that 40 days teaching the apostles, preparing them for this moment when he was no longer going to be with them. He's going to be taken away. And he knew that. And so he spent that time wisely preparing them, teaching them for what laid ahead. And there's a verse... I don't know if it was on a Sunday, but I recently mentioned I was reading in Ecclesiastes and a few things kind of popped popped out there and just seemed really applicable in different areas. But in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 9, it says, Moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yea, he gave good heed and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The wise preacher, and the wording of this is very fitting. Because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. And Jesus was wise, of course, and he's the preacher to these apostles, and he's still teaching them knowledge, instilling wisdom into these people. Preachers today need to be wise. I hope I can apply this to myself. I need wisdom. I need to seek God's wisdom. And even today, I still need to, the preacher still needs to teach people knowledge. I listen to various preachers and various people that I, that I know and, and love and care about speak of nothing other than end times prophecy right now. But that's not the only thing we need to know. There's a whole Bible <laughs> full of things that we need to be taught. And maybe as we're looking and anticipating the end times events, there's other things that are more important to teach <laughs> We need to get the gospel out. We need to teach Christians how to live godly. 
I read an article this morning that uh, someone from a, another church that I, some people that I know, posted the article that was very critical of um, these two pastors in Alberta that have been arrested, saying that they're blaspheming Christ in what they're doing. Like, um, by, <laughs> and I don't agree with everything. You don't have to agree with everything that they say or do. But if they're holding fast to the word and to the convictions that they have, how is that wrong? <laughs> um, my comment, and I, I was trying to be very careful in the way I responded. I felt compelled to say something in response. And the only thing I could come up with, without being too controversial, was... Do you suppose Jesus would have sent away 85% of his congregation if he was here today? I, I can't imagine. <laughs> I think Jesus is not being blasphemed by a man allowing people to come to his church to, to hear the word of God being preached. That's Preachers still need to stand up and preach. And not just about the end times, not just about world events and current, current things going on. We need to preach just the word of God and teach people what it says and what we're to do with it. So pray that I would effectively do that. But. It says that Jesus showed himself to the disciples using many infallible proofs. And it's hard to know exactly what is being referred to by that. But we see several examples. And one of the examples is in John, read it if, you're, if you want to follow in the previous page to where we're looking at, in John 21. Again, starting in verse 1, it says, After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and on this wise showed he himself. There were together Simon Peter and Thomas, called Didymus, and Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples. There's a crowd of the disciples gathered together, and they're gone fishing. Simon Peter saith unto them, I go a fishing. They say unto him, We also go with thee. They went forth and entered into a ship immediately, and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said unto them, Children, have ye any meat? And they answered him, No. And he said unto them, Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and ye shall find. They cast therefore... And now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. Therefore the disciple whom Jesus loved saith unto Peter, It is the Lord. I need to pause, stop there. But you see this simple act. And all he did was tell them 
to cast the net on the other side. And they knew when they caught a net full of fishes, that's the Lord. <laughs> there was no doubt in their mind. And you see the response. This is John that makes the recognition, but you see Peter's response. He wraps a coat around himself and tosses himself into the sea. <laughs> to, to them, this is an infallible proof. There's like no doubt left of who that is, that this is Christ. And that's just one example of the many infallible proofs. And we're given a few of those kinds of examples in the, in the scripture, but I'm sure in those 40 days, Jesus revealed himself to the disciples in many ways, and there was absolutely no doubt in their minds of his resurrection and who he was at that point. When we look at verse 4, it says, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them, that's Jesus, commanded them, that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which said he, ye have heard of me. I just see in this verse, Jesus is, is pointing to a promise. He says, wait, I want you to stay here. Don't. He saw what happened after his resurrection, or after his crucifixion more, Specifically, that the disciples kind of scattered. They kind of stopped doing what they should have carried on doing. They weren't going and preaching. Even those that were together went off to go fishing. And so he's preparing them to carry on the ministry after he's gone. And he says, don't, don't scatter. <laughs> when I'm gone, just wait right here. And he there's this anticipation. There's a promise coming. There's something I have for you that you're going to receive after I'm gone. Daniel chapter 9 verse 3 points to what our attitude should be. And we should all have that kind of anticipation. It says, And I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. It says, I set my face unto the Lord to seek by prayer. We need to turn our face to God in anticipation of what God's going to do in our lives, right? And this is what Jesus is pointing the disciples towards, is having that anticipation, looking to God, waiting with anticipation of what he's going to do. It's hard to know what order to to put some of this in because it he comes back and forth to this topic of that anticipation, what we're anticipating. That thing that he said that promise of the Father, which you have heard of me. That promise is, he gets to that point in a couple of verses, is a gift, the indwelling of the Holy Ghost. 
Joel chapter 2, verse 28 says, And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. There's a, a promise of the pouring out of God's spirit. Ezekiel chapter 36, and verse, starting in verse 25, says, Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols, and I will cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. What a wonderful promise of what God is going to do and the experience that we can have through faith in Christ. There's a promise. Verse 27 there was, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them. We as, when you receive Christ as your Savior, when you put your faith in His sacrifice on the cross as payment for your sin, part of that transaction is that the Holy Ghost actually comes and dwells inside of us, becomes a part of who you are. And we see that, and that would be an entire study on its, in itself, but uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is just writing, dealing with this Corinthian church, but he says to them, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you're not your own? We're not to go living the, the way that we once lived, once we've trusted Christ as our Savior. Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. It's dwelling, the Holy Ghost is dwelling in you. And when you go live a life of sin, you're dragging that Holy Ghost to these unholy places and doing these unholy things. We need to recognize what has taken place in us, that we are, our body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Spirit of God is actually living inside of me and that is what's supposed to direct me not my flesh and body telling me what living however it wants doing the things that we once did right second timothy chapter 1 verse 14 also says that that good thing which was committed unto thee keep by the holy ghost which dwelleth in us it's like the Holy Ghost will give you the power to overcome. We can keep and maintain a holy life through that power if we let it rule over us instead of letting our flesh rule over us. And again in Romans chapter 8 and verse 11, it says, But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. 
and there's a maybe a a current application of that that we can be we can be alive in Christ. We are made alive in Christ. We can quicken our mortal body. This this flesh is death, but with the Holy Ghost living in it, it's brought to life. But there's a future promise beyond that too that when this is when this is gone, when we're done with this shell, <laughs> it's we're going to be given a, a new body that is perfect and we don't we won't have the same problems. It's going to be truly alive. He's going to quicken our mortal bodies. We're going to have an immortal body in the future. So these promises, this promise that Jesus is pointing the apostles to in this verse is a huge promise. And I think we have a tendency to take it for granted. We don't really realize what God has done for us and the, the relationship that we can have with God through that, through that Holy Spirit. We carry on here in verse 6 of Acts chapter 1. It says, When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times of the season which the Father hath put in his own power. And so, we realize, I've said many times over, Israel was looking for the Messiah to come in the way that Jesus is going to come at the second coming. They were expecting him to come in power as a ruler that was going to liberate Israel from all the oppression, was going to lead and conquer and set them free. And the disciples still have that picture in their mind at this point. They see the power of the resurrection, and they think, Are you, when, when is this going to happen? <laughs> and so they're, they're still, 40 days later, still asking that question, Now are you going to? <laughs> because they know that's coming. We still know that it's coming. But Jesus' answer speaks volumes to me. He said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. And Jesus says very much about end times. There's lots of information about what's going to take place and the things to look at and the signs and the seasons and these sorts of things of as we're coming towards the second coming. But Jesus answers to his to the actual disciples, his closest friends, he says, It's not for you to know. And so I wonder all those who are looking at our world today and are so certain that this is the time. Jesus himself said, it's not for you to know. We're not supposed to live our life like there's no future because Christ is returning at any moment. 
We're supposed to live our life carrying on, sharing the gospel. Like, there's two, two sides to that statement. We're not supposed to live our life like he's about to return and there's nothing else to live for and we don't need to prepare for any future events. I can stop working, I can stop saving money, I can stop fixing my house, and I can stop doing all these things because Jesus is com- coming back and there's no point in any of that. That's the wrong attitude. But at the same time, we should be living like Christ is about to return. And I need to make sure as many people hear that message as possible before it happens. Because once that happens, when, when the rapture takes place and the church is gone, the chance of your family members getting saved is very low. The chance of your friends and co-workers learning and believing the gospel is very, very low. The chance of them dying in their sins and spending eternity in hell is very, very high after that point. There's a need to live like the end is near because we need to spread that message of the gospel. We need to carry that on. But that end being near, if it is, shouldn't stop us from living and carrying on with our day-to-day lives. And so there is a a danger there, and Jesus was very clear that you're not going to know. We can see there's lots of information in the Bible, and we know certain things, and we know certain things seem to line up, but that's not a guarantee that this is the year, (laughs) right? And some people don't like to hear that, but too bad. Mark chapter 13, verse 32 says, But of that day and that hour knoweth no man, know not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. Jesus himself doesn't know the exact time. Only the Father knows. Verse 33 says, Take ye heed, watch and pray, for ye know not when the time is. For the Son of Man is as a man, taking a far journey, who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to every man his work, and commanded the porter to watch. Watch ye therefore, for ye know not when the master of the host cometh, at even, or at midnight, or the cock crowing, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what say I unto you? I say unto all, watch. The Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey. And does that mean in anticipation of him coming back, we're all just going to set up a party and get the celebration ready for his return and stop doing the work? (laughs) No, we have to carry on in the work because we don't want to be caught sleeping (laughs) when he does come. When we move on, I realize I'm covering lots of different areas here, and I just kind of just wanted to go through this passage of 
this last moment that the disciples had with Jesus. And look at some of what was spoken and what Jesus dealt with with them in that time. So we're kind of jumping around, but I hope you can handle that. Verse 8 says, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. The question is, what kind of power is that? Is that I'm going to have the power to heal whoever comes by and I can... That's not the power that he's describing. It's not the tongues and healing and prophecy and all this stuff. What he describes in the same verse, you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. The power that we have is the power of the gospel to proclaim Christ to the world. That's the power that he's describing. That's the power that the Holy Ghost gives us that both the desire and the ability to speak truth, speak the gospel into people's lives as God prepares them to receive it. And sometimes we try to do it in our own power. And I've had situations where I've tried to force myself to share the gospel knowing that I ought to do that. And it's like you're preaching to a wall. And there's other times where you just know God is pushing you. The Holy Ghost is moving you to open your mouth and speak to this person. And he gives the opportunity and the ability flows free, right? There's a power given by the Holy Ghost to witness, to give that gospel message. And I don't say that in to try to give you an excuse of, well, I don't feel the Holy Ghost moving me to, to, to speak to that person. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the, the Holy Ghost will give you the power to do it. <laughs> Verse 9, I'm going to read the last few verses here to 11. It says, When he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. It says he shall so come. He's going to come in the same way that he went. But there's some things that need to happen before that's going to happen. And talked about, you know, these, these end times prophecies and, and the things that we're anticipating, this rapture that we're in hope of. But there's some things that need to happen first. And when we look back at some of those, we see in Daniel chapter 9, this 70 weeks prophecy 
and we know that that 70th week is yet to be fulfilled. And we call it the Great Tribulation. But that Great Tribulation shouldn't be confused with the normal, everyday tribulations that we're going to face in this life. And I've heard, I've heard many arguments against um, the doctrine of, of the rapture, and then people think that the church will have to go through the, this great tribulation. Because people have, and here's the argument, is that people have taught that there's going to be a rapture, that you're going to be saved, taken out, before that seven-year period of this great tribulation. But those people thought that they would not have to face any tribulation, any troubles in life. And so they've lost their faith when persecution came. And that's not what we're preaching. We're, we preach, I hope, well, <laughs> hopefully people are preaching that the rapture is just an escape of the great tribulation, which is God's judgment on people. But sin in itself, people in this world are going to, re- to, to receive tribulation. And there's promises in the Bible that as a believer, if you follow Christ, you're going to face tribulation. You're going to face trials. You are going to be persecuted if you're living for Christ. And so we need to expect that. But that seven-year tribulation is, is a different thing. We'll look at Second Thessalonians chapter 2 for a moment. It says, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling, falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work, Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. And Paul is dealing with this church who appeared to think that they had missed something. They all, it's like they almost thought they missed the rapture. And he has to like go back and like, no, hang on. There's some things that need to take place first. The time isn't here just yet. And I think some of us need to, to hear those same words. In chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, verse 9 says, For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. 
we're not appointed to wrath and the great tribulation that seven year period is described as the outpouring of God's wrath and we're not a, we're not appointed unto wrath but to salvation and that's only a small part of why we believe that the church will be taken away at the beginning of that seven year period but and in first Thessalonians chapter 4 again it says but I would not have you to be ignorant brethren concerning them which are asleep that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him for this we say unto you by the word of the Lord that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, and here's, here's the, the real point of this. Is, it says, wherefore, comfort one another with these words. And there's a comfort in knowing that we're going to be taken away. We're going to be freed from this present evil world. And again, that in chapter 5, verse 9, it says, For God hath not appointed us to wrath but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. There's that promise of we're not going to have to face God's wrath as Christians, as people who have trusted in Christ as their salvation. That verse in chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians I can't find at the moment. He that now letteth will let. And until he be taken out of the way. Yeah, verse 7. And so that statement, and and we realize the King James, we don't understand the word let in the way that it's used here. Letting is more of a, less of an allowance than it is a control. <laughs> it's, it's, we permit a certain amount, right? When you got a dog on a leash, you're letting him out to a certain point, And that leash is a stopping point. And that's, kind of how this is being used it's a control but that control that restriction is going to be taken out of the way what restricts satan in our world today satan does or sorry what restricts satan is christians the holy ghost god's spirit living in us is what restricts satan in this world today when that's taken out of the way, 
then all hell breaks loose, right? That's, that would be an appropriate use of that statement because that's what the tribulation is pointing us towards. That's the description is once we're taken out of the way, when the Holy Ghost leaves this earth for that seven years, that's, a, that's what we can see. That's what we see taking place and that's how that can take place in that way. But at the end of that seven years, there's a second coming, and it's different than Jesus' first coming, isn't it? Revelation chapter 19 says, verse 11, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, and out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And this is the answer. Back in verse 6, the disciples asked Jesus, when are you setting up your kingdom? And this is the picture of that occurring at the end of that tribulation period that Revelation describes in so much detail. But you know, if you're reading your Bible, I started in verse 11 of Revelation 19, but if you read the first part of that chapter, there's a description of a wedding taking place. Do you know that the church is described as the bride of Christ? If we're still here during the tribulation and at his second coming, who was at the wedding? <laughs> we have to be at the wedding. There has to be a rapture before that tribulation because the wedding takes place during that time, before the second coming. So, anyway, there is, and that's just a start of that topic but Revelation 22 says verse 20 he which testifieth these things saith surely I come quickly amen even so come Lord Jesus Jesus says I come quickly not in our time frame, right? <laughs> 2,000 years seems like a long time to wait, but for Jesus, for God, it's but a moment, right? And John's response, even so come, Lord Jesus. And he ends in verse 21, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Let's pray.
Lord God, I just, as we look to your word and we looked at this passage and it covers a lot of different areas, different topics, but Lord, it points us to Christ and to our salvation in him and to how we ought to live while we're waiting that second coming and we are to proclaim that gospel message to the whole world starting in our own homes and reaching out from there Lord and to the uttermost parts of the earth help us to do that Lord help us to be effective witnesses for you we pray this in Christ's name Amen